Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Today we're joined by Karim Anjawala, the managing partner of ALN Kenya, Anjawala and Kana, which is generally considered the leading corporate law firm in Kenya and is the largest full-service corporate law firm in East Africa. Karim is considered one of the country's leading corporate M&A practitioners and is also recognized for his Africa-wide cross-border work. Karim, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jonathan. Nice to be here. The first question wasn't in our list of questions we sent you, but I want to hear the answer. What have you been doing lately? Tell us a little bit about your upbringing as well and how you ended up in this line of work. We really like to get to know the person behind the impressive corporate lawyer. Gosh, well, thank you. I am uh, I'm Kenyan uh, of South Asian uh, descent. Uh, my family um, moved to Kenya about 125 years ago uh, from India on my father's side and from Pakistan on my mother's side. Um, my father uh, was also a lawyer. I, I was brought up in Mombasa, which is a coastal city. Um, as you know, Kenya is you know, a, a former colony, and so we have close links to the United Kingdom. I, I studied uh, I studied there and went to law school and university um, in the UK. I worked in London for a few years and then returned to Kenya um, in the early 90s. Um, I am married and have two, two boys uh, who are way much older than I hoped they would be. They were so much nicer when they were younger. One's 22, I just graduated, uh, and the second is 19. Uh, my wife, Parveen, and I met at university, and she's a molecular biologist um, and comes from Mauritius, which is a beautiful Indian Ocean island not so far from here. Thank you. Thank you for that, Kareem. I find the history of your part of the world to be to be fascinating, and one of the aspects that, that makes it interesting is, is the fact that there is this, this large South Asian uh, presence in, in countries like, like Kenya. Turning to your work... You've, you've been involved in, in some very prominent M&A transactions. And while Jonathan is, is uh, experienced in, in that field, this is not something that I do as part of my work or, or only get involved very tangentially. So this is also of, of considerable interest to me. So one threshold question, when looking at the different transactions you've handled and looking at their different scales, what do they have in common and in which ways are, are they different? So I'd like to hear uh, a little bit more about that. 
Thank you, uh, Fred. Uh, it's a bit, I suppose, like um, football. I know you're an ardent supporter of uh, Barcelona. Football is football. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, it's not the same when Real Madrid is playing Barcelona, you know. Uh, that's a whole different ball game. Um, so, look, I think, I think with M&A, uh, you know, the thing I say is that a matter is never small to the client involved, right? Um, so, that's the way I approach all our transactions. If you do, if you do take it on, then it's important to the client, no matter how large or small, relative to the rest of the things that one does as a lawyer. Um, and in in many ways, actually, smaller transactions can get more complex, oftentimes because uh, the parties involved are less experienced in M&A, and therefore certain points which one might take for granted in more complex, larger scale M&A with experienced experienced practitioners. Are, are new uh, to the participants in smaller M&A. So it can actually get more difficult sometimes uh, than, uh, than larger transactions. Uh, having said that, obviously, the, there are unique uh, elements when, you know, when, when the size of the deal relative to the market you're in uh, becomes, uh, uh, you know, when it's off scale. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, this was when Kenya was much smaller economically than it is now. I worked on a landmark private equity deal um, for an investment into a bank here. And when the deal was announced, the bank, the bank was publicly listed. So we had to make public disclosures. It in fact, moved our currency against the US dollar because of the expectation of uh, a large inflow of dollars into the country. I stress this was many years ago when our economy was smaller, but it was actually an un... Uh, unanticipated outcome uh, of the transaction and the transaction advisors were all taken um, by surprise at the fact that the exchange rate moved as a consequence. Often larger transactions uh, occur in regulated industries, whether that's say, for example, telecommunications, banking and insurance. Um, and, and that sort of gives rise to peculiar um, uh, sort of uh, specificities linked to Kind of regulatory approvals. The telecom, telecom regulators, for example, are very concerned, as are the banking regulators, about beneficial ownership uh, of, uh, of, of, of of these regulated entities. So you can expect a lot of questions about about that. Um, you won't be surprised to know that the antitrust implications change dramatically when the transactions get larger, especially if there's a consolidation, um, either vertically or horizontally between between the participants in the transaction. And, and finally, a couple of points around tax. Um, in many African jurisdictions, uh, we have something called stamp duty, and stamp duty is sometimes linked directly to the, to the value of the, of the transaction. So you can expect to pay more stamp duty uh, if a transaction is larger, but also capital gains tax. Um, you know, obviously there may be more capital gains tax if the transaction is larger, but also the tax authorities are more likely to be curious about the transaction uh, if it has you know, a particularly high profile or scale. I just want to follow up with a quick question. As you may know, both Jonathan and I have, have spent considerable time in, in China, and we always somehow find a way to, to bring the conversation back to China. But, but one of the factors that is always very present when doing business in China are the the different restrictions that the government places on foreign investment. So you you did allude to 
regulatory approvals. But I'm curious, um, in a place like like Kenya, are there sectors that are uh, completely out of bounds for foreign investors in, in, in the way that that happens in, in, in China, for example? Or is the economy more or less open in, in general terms, provided, of course, that, that there might be specific regulatory approvals that have to be obtained in, in, in some particular sectors? Thanks for a great question. So look, let me first deal with Kenya. Kenya is probably the most open sub-Saharan African economy in terms of foreign ownership and control and in terms of um, you know, capital flows. So we have no exchange controls and um, very limited uh, local ownership requirements. There are uh, specific sectors, for example, um, insurance, um, whether it's insurance or insurance brokerage, where there are, uh, in, in the case of insurance, at least one third of an insurer must be owned by Kenyans. Uh, for a brokerage, uh, at least 60% must be owned by Kenyans. Um, as a matter of policy rather than law, uh, the regulators in the regulator in the telecoms industry is encouraging foreign ownership up to one third in our telecommunication sector, although they are grandfathering uh, across those telecom entities who are not uh, foreign owned, so they're not requiring them to divest. We have um, some requirements in, in relation to procurement, uh, from uh, particularly for smaller scale contracts from locally controlled businesses. And uh, there is, in general, a limitation around the foreign ownership of agricultural land, although there are legal and structural solutions to that um, uh, under, under what's called our Land Control Act. I think like many parts of the world, you are beginning to see the creeping in via antitrust policy of a kind of public interest argument. It hasn't been much used in Kenya, but I imagine that uh, it may well be used if, for example, major infrastructural assets were, were involved. Um, but in general terms, uh, the Kenyan economy is, you know, other than the sort of sectors I mentioned and perhaps one or two other very small sectors, is fully open to foreign ownership, control, directorship, and so on. Of course, the position in many parts of Africa is radically different, right? Uh, we're a continent with 54 countries, um, you know, uh, different legal systems and, and backgrounds. Uh, and so you only need to go to our northern border and go to Ethiopia when you get a very, very different picture. Uh, and the picture there is, is perhaps similar to China, where certain parts of the economy are simply closed to foreign ownership. Uh, uh, banking and insurance, for example, are, are closed to foreign ownership completely. Uh, but the new government in Ethiopia is now beginning to open up those sectors. So, for example, they have begun a privatization process in relation to telecommunications. So, uh, in summary, the position varies considerably from country to country, but Kenya itself is, is very open. Let's talk for a minute about international transactions. Fred and I do a lot of inbound and outbound international work, and we have clients all over the world. I actually worked on a deal probably a little bit over a year ago that involved a Kenyan family that had invested in a U.S. coffee company. 
I helped with some of their investment-related documents. That was really my first foray into working with Kenya specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your cross-border transactions or what you're seeing in the marketplace? Who's coming to Kenya? What are they looking for in terms of opportunities? And what are some of Kenya's interesting markets that have attracted international investment? Sure thing. So I think the first point to note is that a large driver of acquisition activity and M&A activity in Kenya is private equity. We have a number of Africa-specific private equity funds, the likes of Helios, Invest, DPI, and many others who are focused solely on Africa. And then you have global funds like Actis who have Africa allocations, and they are extremely active in acquisitions, both uh, taking minority and um, majority stakes. And a great deal of activity, as I say, is driven sort of by them. What you've also seen is the entry of strategics. Now, if you think about Kenya sort of uh, geographically, it's obviously on the Horn of Africa, along the coast, a great deep water port, uh, English um, as a, you know, pretty much a first language, and three hours plus GMT. So very well positioned. Yeah, and it's kind of at the center of the continent. The equator runs through Kenya. So it's geographically well-placed and uh, is a hub um, because it has, you know, our capital city, Nairobi, is, you know, modern. Uh, we have a great airport. Uh, you know, huge number of airlines come through here. And we have all the kind of paraphernalia, schools, hospitals, and so on and so forth that make it a, a good place to live. So... It's become a hub and a services center for the region. So many global multinationals, when they're thinking about an entry strategy, will, will think about uh, Johannesburg or Nairobi uh, as an entry strategy for Africa. And they'll drive their MA through Kenya and South Africa and then at bolt on other countries. Um, so by way of example, uh, GE, uh, has set up here, Abbott Laboratories, to use some U.S. names, have set up here uh, recently. Um, the, other, the other thing to be aware of, and I, I just mentioned the U.S. angle here, is AGOA, uh, the African Growth and Opportunities Act, which um, of which you know, Kenya benefits from, particularly in the textile sector. So that's driven a lot of investment into, into textiles. Uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of sort of industry sectors, um, you know, there's a, there's a big trend sort of targeting uh, the growing middle class in Africa. So anything which touches them directly, so fast-moving consumer goods, uh, financial services, healthcare, uh, transport logistics, all of those are, are examples of, of sort of activity that, that foreign investors are increasingly kind of focused on in Kenya. That's fascinating to hear about. This is one of the things I love most about our podcast is hearing your point of view and what's going on in your marketplace. And then I start thinking about all kinds of clients that I should be sending your way, or at least others that I can introduce to you because of their interest. I think that Fred's ears probably perked up when you talked about the textiles industry, because we do a lot of work with China-related clients that want to diversify away from China. A lot of them have realized that leaving China wholesale is probably not realistic, but they're very interested in not having all of their eggs in the China basket. So the idea that we can learn more now about prominent industries in Kenya and other countries in East Africa 
and start to develop a more holistic global supply chain for our clients or helping them to be a part of it in some way is perfect. That's really what corporate attorneys do, right? Our clients expect us to know everything about their business and everyone else's business and sometimes help put the pieces together and not just be the ones papering their transaction. I think that's, that's a great point. And I should just also add, um, I should have perhaps mentioned this earlier, you know, we have, we have signed what's now called the AFC-FTA, the African Free Trade, Continental Free Trade Area, right? Which is a, you know, massive undertaking, creating effectively a, a single trade zone across all the many countries in Africa. I, I forget how many now, but I think well past 30, including Kenya, have signed up to the AFC-FTA and it's now binding which, you know, in principle allows for the duty-free movement of goods and services across these markets. So a lot of your clients will be thinking about, well, you know, where should we set up for us to now seamlessly export across um, multiple markets um, on the continent? Uh, and that increasingly, uh, Jonathan, is, is a question we are asked, you know, uh, kind of a, from, a, from a trade perspective, how do we best take advantage of the AFC-FTA? As you talk, I started thinking about the prospect, right, of a, of a large free trade zone or, or, or a free trade zone as, as, as large potentially as, as all of Africa. I mean, that, that is quite an exciting prospect. And it's a good segue to my next question because I wanted to, to ask you about the startup environment in, in Kenya and the region more, more generally. Could you tell us about the, the startup environment? You're right to raise this because it's probably the most exciting development in the last kind of 24 months um, uh, in terms of the kind of the, the sort of nature in which economic activity is changing in our part of the world. So a little bit of context first, right? So I think that Africa obviously has a history of underinvestment in a whole bunch of systems. You know, talk about, for example, simply uh, digital infrastructure for the payment of money, right? Uh, which is super well developed in, in many parts of the world, uh, but but not in uh, uh, not in many parts of Africa. You know, sort of credit card, chip card, and so on. And we have them, but not as uh, widespread uh, as you might encounter in many other places. Now, that seemed like a, a downside it was for many years. But of course, we also know that incumbency and legacy systems are a huge drag to change. So the advantage you, you mentioned, you know, the, the example you mentioned, Fred, of M-Pesa is a good example of leapfrogging, right? where if essentially one says, well, look, we don't have these legacy systems, but how can we achieve the same outcome in a more efficient way and help um, the mass of the population move funds seamlessly uh, between, you know, buyer and seller, you know, mother and son at university, whatever, right? And M-Pesa just allows that seamless flow of money. And I forget the data, but it's something crazy like 70% of our GDP uh, moves through M-Pesa, you know, in terms of value, in value terms. It's, it's something quite phenomenal. But the story uh, is much, is much, um, bigger now than M-Pesa. And so you've got you know, a rise of fintechs, agri-tech, health tech, logistics tech, right across the continent. But there are four, I would say four key hubs, probably and arguably in this order. Nairobi, 
Lagos, Cairo, and Johannesburg. Um, in 2020, uh, there was $1.4 billion approximately invested in the VC space in Africa. And just under half of that was split between uh, Nairobi and Lagos, so Kenya and Nigeria equally. That was 29% 20, down from 2019, but the estimates are that in 2021, just under 3 billion will be invested in the same sector. Um, there have been some notable successes. Uh, so for example, uh, Paystack, a payment startup in Nigeria was acquired by Stripe, um, for a few hundred million, and cheaper cash was valued at a few hundred million, and these are now all sort of billion dollar plus companies. Um, uh, I think quite soon, a, a company called Swivel will be listed on the NASDAQ um, through a DSPAC transaction. Uh, it is a kind of, it, it is it Uberized buses and is a mass transit solution provider for uh, emerging, sort of large emerging cities. Started out in Cairo, but then moved to Nairobi and Pakistan and so on. So there are a number of examples of great fintechs. Um, uh, and I think that if we were to have this conversation five years from now, uh, the entire banking and insurance space would have been upended by uh, fintech innovation. Uh, very recently, uh, just by way of further example, a company called Fingo, uh, which is a neobank, did extremely well in Y Combinator and got commitments about eight times what they were looking to raise. Um, uh, and this was this was only a, you know sort of a few a few weeks ago, and it's a real kind of um, bootstrap story. Um, Three young men, I think all under 24, school friends who coded and put together um, this the software that runs Fingo, uh, which allows banks to run a retail strategy via a neobank. So lots and lots of examples uh, in this space. Uh, Fred, I, I could go on for another hour on fintech in Africa because it's so exciting. But yeah, I hope that gives you a flavor of what's, of what's happening. For sure, and you you have just given me a, a an idea for a future episode, right? I agree with you completely. I think it, this is a topic that lends itself to to, to lengthier conversations. Um, really, the as at least at least from my perspective as an outsider, how the the economy of the continent is just being redrawn uh, along along these different lines. So cer certainly something to to track. One follow-up, thinking about investment in, in Africa, when you compare the strategies and the, and the, and the objectives of local uh, African investors as opposed to those who might be coming in for, from overseas, uh, in, in, what, in, in what ways do their outlooks diverge? Uh, I mean, do you see a willingness to, to do certain things on the part of, of local investors that might might not be there in the case of, of outside investors who might be perhaps a little bit more conservative about their investment strategies in, in the region. Is this something you see or is there really not that much of a difference in terms of, of the investors depending on, on, on their origin? Yeah, it's a great question. In Africa, a vast continent, and you are seeing the emergence of African acquirers, particularly from South Africa, 
they've been at it for a while, uh, but now Nigeria, Morocco, and Kenya, right? I would say those are the four economies that are producing companies that are making Africa-wide acquisitions, particularly in banking, uh, insurance, and financial services. Um, and I would say that when each of those acquirers is playing in what I would call kind of home territory, so when a Kenyan company is within East Africa and um, a Moroccan companies within North or West Africa and so on, they probably have a more nuanced understanding of risk when compared to a investor from elsewhere um, because of their familiar familiarity with the neighboring markets and the very close trade links and cultural links. However, I'm not sure that if a Kenyan company makes an investment in Nigeria, it approaches it any differently than, say, a U.S. company making an investment in Nigeria, right? Fundamentally, I, you know, culturally, those differences are as, you know, they're as similar, as far apart as each other. Um, so I think that I think that one can probably overestimate if I can call it kind of home ground advantage, if you're an African acquirer, unless you're playing very close to your um, your own core market. Um, having said that, you know, obviously, US acquirers have, um, you know, domestic legislation like the FCPA to worry about. Uh, and if you're a UK company, the UK Bribery Act, uh, when it comes to matters of corruption, uh, and one can't pretend that those those aren't aren't you know or those aren't or cannot be issues in some parts of some parts of Africa, uh, and that sort of legislation isn't uniform across the world. So some companies, or you know, depending on their origin, need to think about those sort of issues even more closely kind of, than others. I think that the the differences are around perceptions of risk principally, and around cultural issues. But those differences are um, reduced the further away an African acquirer goes from his home market. That's a very interesting way to think about it, of course. Like you said, 54 countries. If you're in your home market or near your home market, you hear things, you see things, and you know people. But if you travel a few thousand kilometers away from your home base, your network thins out. I'll follow up on a question Fred asked. What is happening internally as these new African entrepreneurs rise? What kind of people are they? How are they changing the market? How are they changing the overall culture of, let's say, East Africa? You can talk in general terms, but I have to assume that you know some of these entrepreneurs. I'm thinking particularly that a lot of startups hold the promise of having your own rags to riches story. And you're talking about these fintech entrepreneurs who are in their 20s. I assume many of them don't come from a wealthy background. And so when they get a large investment, suddenly they're millionaires or billionaires. Are they there spending lavishly? Are they doing good things? How do they start to exert their muscle in their communities? What kind of trajectories have you seen for some of these entrepreneurs? I'm sure some of this is in the news that you just pick up by being on the ground. That's a good question. Um, 
I think it, I think it, I think it varies. So I guess, you know, your, your first class of newly minted millionaires, billionaires, you know, whatever, right. Um, very wealthy people probably, uh, began in South Africa. And, you know, there are, uh, interesting urban myths around sort of, you know, flashing cash and, uh, you know, wild parties and so on. Uh, but I think that, you know, I think a lot of this also depends on the atmosphere, right? Like in which you are, so Silicon Valley has been around for a while, right? And there is a kind of, I guess, a norm of behavior and a way of doing things and a, a expectation and so on. And so when you have a newly minted, newly minted billionaire from Silicon Valley, there's almost a playbook, right? Um, that one expects from them, right? And there are, of course, variations to that theme and variations from the mean, but, you know, there is a, there is a playbook. It's very new here, you know, so there isn't, there isn't a playbook. Uh, and I can't just, you know, roll off my tongue a whole list of people who, who are newly minted, you know, in that sense. Um, I think, though, that, that the interesting thing for me is that a lot of the fintechs, um, I'm thinking, for example, also of, of Swivel, uh, which is a sort of a, a transport tech, the one I mentioned that it, that's listing on the NASDAQ shortly. You know, the founder is a 28-year-old gentleman called Mustafa Kandil. Uh, and, you know, he's just obsessed by fixing what he sees as a real, a very big problem, right? Which is a kind of inhumane. Uh, and it, particularly if you're female, um, kind of de dehumanizing experience of, public transport in many emerging markets. So um, a, lot of, a lot of the uh, innovations in our part of the world are linked to really deep social problems, if I can put it that way. Um, if I contrast that, say, with an Amazon, which you know might make life much more efficient, but I think all of us can remember that life was pretty cool pre-Amazon, right? I mean, sure, we now get their deliveries more efficiently and so on and so forth. But it wasn't kind of fixing a social problem, right? Uh, with a lot of the startups in, in our part of the world, they're fixing a social problem. So I think our entrepreneurs, I get the sense, at least, at least at this stage, our entrepreneurs are quite driven by that idea of kind of social change um, and not so driven by not so driven by the idea of being a billionaire or a multimillionaire, much more by creating the change. Now, you know, once they become a millionaire or billionaire, will that all, you know, radically alter? You know, I'm just not sure, right? Uh, it's studying human behavior. But I think, I think the fact that they are fixing deep-seated social issues uh, means that they remain vested in their societies and in fixing problems in their societies, dealing with issues of poverty, trying to move people from the, you know, uh, to the middle class, uh, and so on. Um, I'm not sure I'm, I've answered your question, but I hope I've given you at least a, a kind of a trajectory of how I see things. That's really all I wanted, just your insight, because of course, we're all going to have different experiences. 
I know you're not a reporter on the startup industry, so I don't expect you to have a list of all the entrepreneurs and newly minted millionaires in the last six months. But your insights are absolutely fascinating and have me thinking about what drives us. I like to think I'm pretty altruistic, and the idea that these entrepreneurs are really addressing social problems first is excellent. I'm sure they have no problem with making money as well. Fred and I read international news voraciously. Fred reads probably twice as much as I do, but I still love reading international news. And so I think we probably have a pulse on the things that are going on around the world more than a typical American and probably more than a typical American lawyer. And that's why we do what we do, because we love the international space. I haven't been to the continent yet, but it's very high on my list, partly because I've got friends, some of them who I've gained through the podcast and some through connections in the US. Let's pretend now I'm your associate attorney. I'm a newly minted U.S. or U.K. attorney. I don't know a lot about the continent, but I'm very interested in doing work there. What are some of the initial conversations you would have with a newly minted attorney or even a more midstream career attorney about doing deals in Africa? How are the deals put together? I know you've had some training in the U.K., so feel free to use whatever parallels make sense in your mind and focus on East Africa or any particular locale that you want to talk about. I think the big difference between lawyering in this part of the world and in uh, markets that are much more deeply lawyered, if I can call it that way, it, it is that clients um, really do think of you or want to think of you as their trusted advisor. And not just their lawyer, but their trusted advisor. And so they're looking for your judgment beyond just kind of the legal and technical issues. But in relation to the transaction or the joint venture or the partnership that they're about to embark on. So the scope of what they want from you uh, is much broader. Now, I find that, you know, I find that exhilarating because it gives me an opportunity to shape um, my client strategy. It gives me the opportunity to bring what I know of kind of socioeconomic and, and, uh, and geopolitical issues into my lawyering, right? Um, what I know of how the regulatory space may be changing, uh, what I know of potential government policy and so on and so forth into my lawyering. So I think the first and most fundamental change would be, I think the expectation is that you have a, you have a you're more than just a lawyer, right? Um, you're much more than just a lawyer. Uh, and of course, many of our transactions do have transaction advisors on them, but uh, you, you're, you're much less boxed in uh, than you would, that, that is my impression with, um, you know, uh, say work in, in, in London, for, you know, for example. So I think that's probably the biggest difference. You know, the other, the other things, you know, a couple of other points I would, I would sort of note is that you know our regulators you know some of them are now very sophisticated some of them have less less experience than you might in a foreign market be accustomed to so uh, you need to obviously maintain very respectful relationships with your regulators uh, but also be patient and be prepared to spend the time and invest uh, in uh, explanations, even for things which you might, from the market in which you're coming from, find fairly obvious. 
it's so, so in certain markets in certain countries, there is a lack of regulatory capacity, and you know getting frustrated about it isn't helpful, right? You've just got to have a a method of engaging um, uh, in a very kind of studious and you know, sort of resilient way. So I think that's probably a you know a second sort of major difference. You know, the third point that stands out uh, or, or to take your example of a mid-career lawyer who's sort of now joining uh, and, and working on sort of Africa deals, you know, the, the fact that each market in Africa can be very, very different. So it's very dangerous to say, hey, you know, we did this in Nigeria, so it's likely to work in Kenya. Uh, I see that it's, you know, it sounds like a very obvious point, uh, but I see that mistake being made far too often. Um, and just remembering that, you know, just like countries in South America who may neighbor each other are very different, the same is true in Africa. I wanted to make one comment before we jump in, sorry. So your comment on the civil service and how some of those regulators are less experienced reminds me of Martin Meredith's book, The Fate of Africa, that I've been working my way through, thanks to a recommendation from one of our earlier podcast guests, a friend of mine who's in Kampala, Uganda. It has been interesting from a historical perspective and now your cultural perspective to understand and see the power vacuum that was left when many of the colonial powers pulled out, some of them almost overnight. For many African nations, this is recent history, only the last 40 to 70 years. That may seem like a lot for those of us who only live 70 or 80 years in our lifetime, but in terms of building up a civil service and growing institutional knowledge, a lot of them don't have hundreds of years of experience to rely on. They have decades or years. And so it's very interesting to hear that, like with any industry, some will learn faster than others. Really, really great insight. Thank you. But that's a great point. And and I think we see issues like that in, in other parts of the world. And we also do a lot of work in the in the cannabis space. And the scenario we sometimes face is, is exactly as you described. There are things that would be obvious to, to someone operating in the United States, you know, regarding the, the products that are produced in the, in the industry, but a very similar situation to what you're describing. Um, there, there is sometimes this conception of, of, of the continent as, as one entity and then you know, things worked in this country, so surely they will work in the country next door. But as you pointed out, you know, you were, you had a great example showing how even neighboring countries like Kenya and Ethiopia can have vastly different regimes in terms of, of, of foreign investment, right? And this is this is true also in in Latin America. So it's a these are regions with great promise, and and some of the statistics are are you know mouthwatering. But there's also that reality of of many borders and, and, and differences between countries. As we start to wrap up, for those professionals who are attracted by, by this effervescence that we are seeing in, in, in Africa, what do you see as the entry points for someone who is thinking of checking out what's happening in, in Africa and maybe saying, look, well, I'll, I'll take a year to go give it a try and see what opportunities I might find. Do you have some thoughts on what might be a good place for them to to make their destination? Gosh, there are so many great places. Um, you know, I think I think that the the but it's the first point you make though is the most important one, which is come and see, right? Because part of the problem is there are 
misconceptions, prejudices um, built up over time, which can quickly be put to rest if one does spend time physically in a country, on, you know, on the continent, in a country, in a city. Uh, and you get a much better understanding of um, how things really work and what the nature of risk and reward is. There are um, now, you know, any number of um, sort of societies, communities, events in relation, blogs in relation to Africa uh, that provide um, a really nuanced understanding of what's happening on the continent. And, you know, it's obviously very difficult to generalize, right, across 54 countries, four main language groups, probably like 700 uh, sub-languages and so on. Um, So it is very difficult to generalize, but there are some sort of macro themes that cross cut many parts of the continent. Um, you know, uh, the, the rise of large urban cities, right? There are, I think, more than 50 cities in Africa with a population of more than a million, right? Uh, Two thirds of the world's arable land uh, is in Africa, right? Um, just by way of sort of two, two examples. We have by far the youngest population uh, on on the planet, uh, and the population most hungry for education. So, um, you know, macro trends sp- speak very much uh, in favor of uh, many parts of Africa continuing to uh, to grow and continuing to create um, better and better opportunities for its people. Um, so the key I think is to, is to, is to, you know, I always say that, and I'm sure you found this, you know, in relation to Southeast Asia, it was never as good as people hyped it up to be and never as bad when it crashed as people said it was, right? <laughs> um, those of us who have been in Africa for a while know, knew when it was all hype that, yeah, there was lots going on, but not nearly as much as the hype suggested. And even after the economic downturn and COVID, we know things aren't as bad as some of the hype might suggest. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's a difficult question, but I don't know whether that gives you a, a sense. And maybe, sorry, just to, I think you asked a sort of geographical question. It would almost be unfair for me to sort of to, to mention, right? But obviously, a lot of it depends on language strength. So you know, if you were if you were fr- French speaking, then you know, not many better places than Casablanca, Abidjan, Dakar, okay, in Senegal, amazing places, right? Um, if you speak Portuguese, then you know Luanda or Maputo, um, in Mozambique, and of course in the English speaking world. I'd, I'd obviously have to put Nairobi first. I'm biased, um, but you know what a great city Accra is becoming. Uh, Lusaka in Zambia, right? Um, Lagos, if you've got tons of energy and you know uh, uh, 
you know, it's it's probably the most uh, effervescent city on the continent. And then, of course, you've got the whole of the Arabic-speaking world, um, you know, Egypt, Morocco, etc. Uh, and some of them are also French people. Karim, it's been absolutely a blast to have you on the podcast with us today. I know when I explain our podcast to people and tell them we're normally just lawyers sitting around talking about the business environment around the world, some may roll their eyes at that. But for me, I look forward to every episode and certainly appreciate the time that you spent with us today on the podcast. You've given us excellent insights and we certainly enjoyed getting to know you. And we'll be following more and more of your work and look forward to meeting in person at some point as well. We always like to close the podcast with recommendations of something perhaps that you've read recently. It could be a book, a newspaper article, a blog, or something you've listened to, maybe another podcast. We've had uh, good geographical recommendations as well. So if you say, come to Nairobi and why, we'd love that. So anything like that is completely on the table. What recommendations do you have for our listeners today? Gosh, well, you know, Tanzania just won the Nobel Prize for literature. Um announced a couple of weeks ago. Um, many of us who read Abdul Razak Gurna's books, um, he was from Zanzibar, knew it was overdue. So I'd have to re recommend anything by Abdul Razak Gurna. Um, you know, fantastic, fantastic writer of fiction. Um, if you want to read, I think amongst the best journalism about the continent, at least about Eastern and Southern Africa, go to the theelephant.info. Um, it's sort of deeply um, thoughtful pieces. Just have time on your hands. They're not short, but super interesting. Um, and if you um, want to join me with a kite surf, come to Bofa Beach in Kilifi. 70 kilometers north of Mombasa, and I'll see you there. Excellent recommendations. Thank you very much. Fred, what do you have for us? I can't kick the China habit ever. I thought this was a good piece that, you know, even, even for someone who doesn't read that much about China, I think this one would be a, a useful one. And it's uh, titled The Triumph and Terror of Wang Huning. This, this was published in Palladium. On October 11th, uh, written by N.S. Lyons. I'll, I'll try to come up with something non-China <laughs> next time, but um, uh, that, that's mine. Uh, thank you, Kareem, for, for yours. Definitely a lot there that I want to dig into. Jonathan, what do you have for us? I'm going a little lighter as well in contrast to yours. My wife and I love BBC shows that end up on Amazon Prime. And so, of course, we worked our way through Downton Abbey and we were sad when it was over. We found a new show called Grantchester, which is Downton Abbey-esque. It's set in 1950s England and it's a crime mystery about a partnership between a clergyman and a police detective. It has enough of the Downton flair, including the music, which reminds me of Downton every time I hear it. So it is a lot of fun if you're just looking for a nice British throwback show. I think there are five seasons now on Amazon Prime, uh, so I guess uh, if you can find it there or anywhere else in the world, a BBC affiliate, you'll probably find it as well. With that, Karim, we want to thank you for being with us. We really enjoyed it. We hope we can speak with you again and meet up in person when we can make that happen. Thank you so much, guys. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. 
We'll see you then. Thank you.